0: Just in case, just in case. Comes now the and request, with all due respect from Hello entry, the and welcome to the February 20, 2017 edition of Just in Case, the podcast of criminal law cases, just in from the Supreme Court of the United States, the 10th Circuit and the Kansas Appellate Courts. I'm Paige Nichols. And this podcast is brought to you by Monett and Spurrier Chartered on the first and third Mondays of every month. Today, I'll fill you in on published cases of interest decided on or after February 6, 2017. But first, a little Kansas history. 136 years ago, as I record this, on February 19, 1881, Kansas became the first state in the country to outlaw alcoholic beverages. You thought prohibition started with the federal constitutional amendment in 1920? Nope, it started here in Kansas 40 years earlier when we amended our state constitution to forever prohibit the manufacture and sale of intoxicating liquors except for medical, scientific, and mechanical purposes. The Kansas legislature passed a statute on February 19, 1881, making it a misdemeanor to make or sell alcohol without a medical or other license, and first-time violators would be fined not less than $100 nor more than $500 or sent to the county jail for 20 to 90 days. Peter Muggler was a Salina Brewer who was convicted of violating this law and he appealed to the United States Supreme Court. Muggler v. Kansas was decided in 1887, And there, the United States Supreme Court upheld the Kansas laws against several constitutional challenges. In explaining the state's right to protect its citizens from the evils of alcohol, Justice Harlan said, There is no justification for holding that the state, under the guise merely of police regulations, is here aiming to deprive the citizen of his constitutional rights. For we cannot shut out of view the fact within the knowledge of all, that the public health, the public morals, and the public safety may be endangered by the general use of intoxicating drinks, nor the fact established by statistics accessible to everyone that the idleness, disorder, pauperism, and crime existing in the country are in some degree traceable to this evil. You know the rest of the story. National Prohibition in the 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution in 1920, followed by its repeal in the 21st Amendment in 1933. But did you know how that repeal happened? It was through a state-by-state convention process under Article 5, which allows for constitutional amendments by state-ratifying conventions in three-quarters of the states. 38 states held conventions and voted to repeal Prohibition. But a handful of states, shall we say, abstained from the process, and Kansas was one of those states. And even after the 21st Amendment came into effect, Kansas held on to statewide prohibition until 1948, longer than any other state. And that, I think, calls for a rousing sing-along with the Queen of the Beatniks, Judy Henske. Everybody now. Alleluia. Okay, let's see what the Tenth Circuit has to report this week. Imagine, you are walking home on a cool October evening. The days are getting shorter, and so it's already dark by 7.45 p.m. The street is unlit. You are wearing black clothes. You are carrying two backpacks. As you pass a construction site near a housing project, a police cruiser carrying two cops pulls up alongside you. Nobody else is around. Can we talk to you? Yeah, what's up? Where are you coming from? Where are you going? I'm coming from my grandmother's house. I'm just trying to get home. What's your grandmother's address? I don't know her address. Maybe you're cold. Maybe you're tired. Maybe it's been a long day. Maybe you just don't like being pestered by the police as you're minding your own business trying to get home. Maybe, having been inundated with stories of police shootings in recent years, you feel intimidated, alone on a dark street with two police officers following you you keep walking and the cruiser creeps cruising beside you will you stop so we can talk to you that was a seizure says the 10th circuit in united states versus hernandez affirming a district court order suppressing the gun that officers ultimately found on mr hernandez why is this a seizure the totality of circumstances, which the court discusses in detail, reminding us that these cases are all about the facts, and every fact counts. Considering the totality of the circumstances here, that there were two uniformed police officers driving closely alongside Mr. Hernandez in the dark, with no one else around, and that Mr. Hernandez did not stop walking until one of the officers asked him to stop, even though he was answering the officers' questions. The district court did not err in concluding that there was a show of authority by these officers sufficient to constitute a seizure under the Fourth Amendment. And since the officers had no reasonable suspicion to support this seizure, the government loses. The Tenth Circuit meticulously rebuts all of the government's arguments on this point. High crime area? Look, the location of a stop in a high crime area is not sufficient by itself to support a reasonable suspicion. But but he wasn't using the sidewalk. There was a sidewalk on the other side of the street, and he was walking on the side that didn't have a sidewalk. Mr. Hernandez might well have decided to take a shorter route to his destination or to see the progress of the neighborhood's latest high-rise development. The government did not explain why suspicious persons are less likely to choose the sidewalk. But, but, he was dressed in black, and he was carrying backpacks. Here's the Tenth Circuit. If black clothing were sufficient to confer reasonable suspicion, it could subject the ambling public, or at least its Hispanic members, to virtually random seizures inquisitions to obtain information which could then be used to suggest reasonable suspicion and arbitrary exercises of police power. But he didn't even know his own granny's address. Tenth Circuit, again. Ordinary experience tells us that a grandchild who knows the familiar way to his grandmother's house may well not know her exact street address. So I ask you, listeners, Do you know your grandmother's address? Did you know your grandmother's address as you were growing up? Did you know your grandmother's address when you were in college? Do you know it today? I realize I never knew my grandmother's address. I knew what house she lived in on Salem Street. I knew when she lived in that senior community behind the mall how to get there. And I knew when she moved to that nursing home up north. But unless I was addressing an envelope and had her address in front of me, I could not have recited it to anybody, much less under the stressful situation of a police interrogation on the road alone at night. Again, that case is United States versus Hernandez. United States versus Bowers is a criminal contempt case that followed on the heels of a civil contempt case. Here, the Tenth Circuit held that the district court did not err in ordering Mr. Bowers to pay the civil contempt judgment as a condition of supervised release. The district court also did not err in refusing to disclose the civil contempt judge's referral of the case to the U.S. attorney for prosecution, and the district court did not illegally sentence Mr. Bowers to 15 months in prison. On this last point, do you know what? The criminal contempt statute at 18 U.S.C. 401 has no statutory maximum. It gives courts authority to punish contempts at their discretion. And courts have affirmed sentences ranging from 10 months to 10 years under this statute. There is a statutory six-month limit for certain contempts described in Section 402, but that limit does not apply to 401, sentence affirmed. In United States v. Collins, the Tenth Circuit considered the statutory limits on sentences for second or subsequent supervised release revocations. Those limits are based on the supervision limits authorized for the offense that resulted in supervision. The question was whether offense in this context means the original offense of conviction that resulted in the original supervision or the supervision violation that resulted in the second or subsequent supervision. The court holds here that offense means original offensive conviction, so be sure to take a look at Collins if you're trying to figure out what sentence a person is exposed to on a second or subsequent revocation of supervised release. United States v. Yuong, that's D-U-O-N-G, is a child sex trafficking case. The question here is what mens rea must the government allege and prove with respect to the child's status as a minor. The Tenth Circuit does a basic statutory analysis and decides that under the provision that these defendants were charged with, the required mens rea does not need to be either knowledge or reckless disregard, as it does under other provisions, but the government needed only to prove that the defendants had a reasonable opportunity to observe the child. That's the news from Denver. And we don't have much news from Kansas. Just one published criminal case since our last episode. That case is State versus Gonzalez Sandoval, and it's an interesting Batson decision. During jury selection in Gonzalez Sandoval, the prosecutor used a peremptory strike against a Hispanic juror. Defense counsel challenged the strike under Batson. The prosecutor made general comments about the juror's demeanor, saying, well, she avoided eye contact. But the prosecutor also said the juror had failed to raise her hand when the group of prospective jurors was asked as a whole whether anyone had ever been a witness in a law enforcement investigation. According to the prosecutor, this juror had been a witness in two recent cases. The judge refused to find the lack of eye contact, a race-neutral reason, but held that the juror's failure to disclose her previous witness status was sufficiently neutral and the judge allowed the strike. The prosecutor then moved to strike the only other Hispanic juror in the room. This time, the prosecutor's only reason was demeanor. According to the prosecutor, this juror just didn't seem as engaged in the process as some of the other jurors. Defense counsel challenged the strike, and this time the judge agreed that the explanation was not race-neutral. The judge did not allow this strike. Later in the case, the prosecutor made two confessions after checking the history of the stricken Hispanic juror. Remember, she said that the juror had failed to disclose the fact that she had been a witness in two recent cases. Well, that was wrong. In the first case, the witness was a completely different Hispanic person with apparently the same name. And in the second case, the witness was not the juror, but the juror's sister. But guess what? The prosecutor did some digging and found the actual juror's name listed as a witness and a victim in a couple of old property cases. So even though the prosecutor did not have a valid race neutral reason to strike the juror during voir dire, with enough time and research, she was able to find a reason after the fact. The juror should have disclosed her witness status, but she didn't strike justified. Well, this was all fine with the trial judge, but not with the Kansas Court of Appeals. That's not how Batson works, says the court. There is no fourth step under the Batson analysis where prosecutors get a do-over when the initial reasons they provide are deemed facially invalid or pretextual. The prosecutor's peremptory strike has to stand or fall on those initial reasons. This strike was invalid when it was made. Conviction reversed. A couple of other notes from Gonzalez-Sandoval. The Court of Appeals cautions against relying on general questions during voir dire to elicit responses and then complaining when no responses are forthcoming. Here's how the court put it. Courts should not expect veneer members to respond to poorly articulated and general questions, which can be interpreted in a variety of ways. And the state should not be allowed to exclude a minority veneer member from a jury for failing to respond to such poorly worded questions. The Court of Appeals says if the state has information about a juror, the state should confront that juror with the information rather than holding it back for a strike. Here, for instance, if the state had said to the juror, hey, weren't you just a witness in this one case, the juror could have said, no, that wasn't me. And they could have talked about what the juror interpreted the question to mean and sorted it out. Last, the Court of Appeals notes that the state had used an investigator to look into the background of this minority veneer member. But the record does not indicate whether only this person's background was investigated or whether only minority veneer members were investigated or whether all the veneer members, minority and non-minority, were investigated. This is an important question, says the Court of Appeals. If the backgrounds of only minority veneer members were investigated, there would be no way to compare the similarities and differences between the two groups, minority and non-minority. This means that minority veneer members could be excluded for something in their background, which also existed in the background of non-minority veneer members. This situation would be unfair and a denial of equal protection to defendants and to minority veneer members. But you know what I would like to add to that? If the prosecution is only researching minority veneer members' backgrounds, well, that's evidence of intent, right? And those prosecutors should not be allowed to use that information to strike a juror. All right, that's our show for today. Have you got legal news? Or maybe you just want to talk back. Email me at podcast at gmail.com. I'm Paige Nichols, and I'll be back again in two weeks. Oye, 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 wherefore, whereby we're ready to wear. Rest you to cut it, give me a to cut it, Just in case.